Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading today from verses 28 through 32. Romans chapter 1. Now let's come before the Lord and we will pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Lord God, we affirm and declare with one voice that Jesus is the King, and we are here to make much of Him. We are here of one accord to glorify You, Lord, in everything that we do, from our fellowship, through our giving, through our singing, and now through the preaching of Your Word. It is all designed for one audience, and that is the audience of one, that is You, that we make much of the work that you have done on our behalf, that you have seen fit to bring your enemies and make them part of your family. That we celebrate that, Lord, and we rejoice in that. And we pray, Lord, that as we come into your word and we hear it read and preached, Lord, that it would have its full effect in our lives. As Brother Matt said, that our hearts would be soft and fertile and that the seed of your word would fall deep inside and that it would take root and bear fruit in our lives that you would use your word to conform us more and more into the image of your glorious Son and our, our wonderful Savior. And it's in His name we ask this and pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 28. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haunty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Randy Alcorn, the pastor and author, once wrote, In the day that we stand before our Master and Maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name. How many people called us great? How many people considered us fools? It will not matter whether schools and hospitals were named after us, whether our state was large or small, whether our funeral drew 10,000 or no one. It will not matter what the newspapers or history books said or didn't say. What will matter is one thing and one thing only, what the Master thinks of us. I know. I know. I know. This is the expression that we have all encountered when we have tried to help someone. 
right? When we tried to confront someone, when we tried to give someone advice, invariably we were always met with these two words, I know, tell me I'm wrong. And this is an expression, if we're honest, is something that we have used ourselves on many occasions, right? You go to the doctor, whether it's for a cold or a splinter or, you know, your stomach's not feeling well, and what does the doctor invariably say to you? You need to lose a little weight. I know. You tell your parents, hey, you're thinking about buying a new car, you're excited, you know, you're, you're, you want the new model and, and the features are all that you want, and, and your parents are like, ah, you probably should save a little more money. Maybe you shouldn't go into so much debt. And you're like, I know. Your friends and your family tell you you probably need to stop drinking so much. And you're like, I know. You probably should rework your priorities and make your spouse a priority and go on date nights. <laughs> tell me about it. I know. You really should make prayer and Bible reading and, and worship a priority in your life. I know. You probably shouldn't be talking to him or probably shouldn't be talking to her. I know. The answer is always that, right? I know. That's our experience. That just about everyone that we meet and everyone we come in contact with and have a relationship with, we offer wisdom, we offer truth, we offer advice. And, and, and what we've come to understand is we're not telling them anything new. We're not giving them new information because they know everything, Right? We're just reminding them of what they already know. And because of that, they dismiss us. They, they, they just use this expression, I know, as, just an, as, as a dismissal. In fact, they're not saying, yeah, I know, I, I really need to do that. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I know, now shut up and leave me alone. Right? And let's be honest, right? This is an issue that we've seen in other people, but this is an issue that we have seen in all of us. We're guilty of this, all of us, on some level. There are things that we know, things that we know that we, we should do, things that we know that we shouldn't do, things that we know that we should say, and things we know that we shouldn't say. I mean, there are things that we know, but knowing those things doesn't seem to change what we do. You've heard the old expression, you know, knowledge is power. Not always. Knowledge is power if you act on what you know. <laughs> but knowing isn't enough, especially when you know, right, but don't do anything. Every overweight person that I've ever encountered knows the key to losing weight is diet and exercise. You don't have to tell them. Right? They already know. Or how about this one? If you knew better, you would do better. I've heard that all my life. Well, you know, don't take, don't take it so hard. If you knew better, you'd do better. No, you wouldn't, right? Because all of us at times know better, but we still don't do better. We knowingly do what we are not supposed to do, and we don't always do what we ought to do that we know we should be doing. So knowing doesn't always change what we do. In fact, we often do what we do and live how we live in spite of what we know. And this is universal. This is something that everyone deals with. We all face this conundrum that, that we know what we ought to do and what, not what we ought not to be doing, but that doesn't change the fact that we still do the things we shouldn't be doing and don't do the things that we should be doing. 
And by the way, that is the truth that is at the root of the text today. This is the truth of of the summary of Paul's indictment against all of humanity. And it is this, they know. Everyone knows. They know the truth about God, they just don't care. They know the truth, but completely reject Him in spite of what they know. And this is why mankind, as we've said before, is without excuse. This is why we've said before that there is no such thing as a true atheist. There's no such thing as anyone who is truly innocent. Everyone knows the truth, but they do what they want to do anyway. And that, by the way, is why the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. In fact, that's what Paul says, right? taking us right back to, the, to verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know the truth, they suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they actively hold it down. And then he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So no one is innocent. And then he says, for although that they knew God, right? It's right there in this statement. They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, or because of that, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, and to the dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged or traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They know the truth but refuse to worship God and honor Him as God. For this reason, he continues and says, God gave them up for dis- to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion with one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. They know. All of mankind knows. They know that there is a God. They will say that they don't believe that there is a God. They will deny it and look you in the face and tell you you're crazy, that you are insulting them for telling them what they think that they know. But I'm telling you, deep down in their heart of hearts, they know that God exists. They know what His character is, and they know what He expects of them. And they know that He is due honor and worship and thanksgiving. But they deny this truth and suppress that truth and will exchange that truth for a lie. That is the foundation of mankind's rebellion against God. That is the, the root of all of our sin. The knowledge of who God is and this willful, hard-hearted denial of who God is. This is the, the human condition. This is the default of all humanity. Everyone. We are not good people who occasionally, accidentally make some mistakes. All of mankind is openly hostile to God, and our transgressions, out of that transgressions, are the overflow of our hostility, right? We do what we do because we hate Him. 
And this is something that, that even Christians tend to mess up when we try to diagnose the problem with other people. Right? What we do is we see someone living in unrepentant sin and we say, you're at odds with God because of that particular unrepentant sin, ignoring the underlying issue. So we, see that, we think that God's wrath abides on them because of a, of a particular sinful activity rather than what is at the heart of that activity. And we see it all the time. When someone is, who drinks all the time, we would say to them, you're at odds with God because of your drunkenness. Or someone who is promiscuous, we'd say that you're at odds with God because, because of your sexual sin. Or someone who commits a lot of crimes, we'd say you're at odds with God because, because of your crimes that you're committing. Or we see somebody that's caught up in the LGBT lifestyle and we say you're at odds with God because of your same-sex relationship or because you're transgender. But the thing that we need to see here is those things, though a problem, are not the root of the problem. And as long as we continually address those things and don't get to the root of the problem, we're never helping anyone understand what the real problem is. See, those things are the fruit of the problem. They are not the root of the tree. They're the leaves of the tree. They are the outworking of what the true problem is. And the root problem is this universal unbelief. And when I say unbelief, I don't mean that they don't believe down in the heart. I mean the unwillingness to believe and acknowledge the truth that they already know. The hard-hearted response towards God. It is this blatant rejection of who God is, is the problem. Everything else that we do as humans is an outgrowth of that fundamental issue. That is why we're called not to suddenly become people who obey the law, but to what? To believe. To repent and what? Believe. In fact, their visible sins are the outworking of the real issue. They know God, what He requires of them, and they actively deny the truth about Him. And they deny their, His rightful place in their lives. And because of this, that foundation of those sin, that, that rebellion, it's because of that that God reveals His wrath upon them. And He reveals His wrath upon them by doing what? We've discovered that He does it by giving them over to their sin. God has given them up. God gives them over. He removes His gracious hand of restraint in their lives. He basically allows them to go their own way and have what they wanted to have. And that's been the pattern of Paul's words ever since verse 18. That's been the pattern that we've seen over and over again. Mankind knows God, mankind rejects God, and then God gives them over to what they want. And a life they want to live is a life without Him, and that's what He gives them. That's what they want, a life without God. And the consequences of God allowing these people to go their own way and giving them what they want is a headlong leap into the abyss of depravity. It, is, it, is, it begins with sexual impurity, as Paul says, and continues until all of mankind is declaring war on the image of God itself and tries to destroy the God-created order of male and female relationships and marriage and, and giving up natural relationships and pursuing heinous, unnatural relationships. And the vast majority of the sin that we see in unbelievers in their lives is, is the fruit of the consequences of, of this real problem. The real problem is they're denying who God is. The real problem is they know the truth, but they don't want God. They don't want 
God. What's the problem with humanity? They don't want God. So there's two questions that people ask all the time, and I can give you the answers to. What's the meaning of life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What's the problem with the world? They don't want God. They want to be free from Him. You see, they don't, you see, they know. They just don't care. It's like the patient who listens to the doctor talk about diet and exercise. I know. Shut up. I don't care. And so they deny God's rightful place in their hearts and their lives. And as a result, God gives them over to what they want, which ultimately leads to what? Their own destruction. And that is the truth that Paul is going to repeat in this text. They know him. They just simply reject him. And so Paul begins with, in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's that expression again. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so Paul here is basically not telling us anything new. He's repeating the indictment. Right? This is the charge that he makes of all of humanity. that makes us all guilty before God. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. Now the Greek actually for this expression is better translated like this. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain God in their knowledge. That's more of a literal translation. And I think it really gets better at the heart of the issue, right? They didn't see it as worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, to retain Him in their knowledge. This right here is a summary of everything that Paul, again, has been saying. They know it. It's, he's in their knowledge. They just don't see the value of Him in their knowledge. They don't see the value of trying to retain Him in their knowledge. They don't see the value of truth, which, by the way, is the essence of our original sin. Eve knew what God had said. She knew the truth, but instead she rejected the truth and pursued what she wanted instead. And then Adam, our federal head, our representative went right along with her. He likewise abandoned the truth that he knew for the lie. And this has been true of every human being since the beginning, and the Scriptures bear witness to this being so. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. If you don't haven't memorized this one, you should memorize this one. This answers a lot of questions, right? People always tell you to follow your heart. Here's what Jeremiah says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Paul says, and you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, wants of our body and mind, and were by our very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, which we'll get to, but just a preview. He says, and as it is written, none is Righteous, no, not one. And if that were all he had written, that would be enough. But he also 
emphasizes, no one understands. No one, no one seeks for God. All, all have turned aside together. They have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he jumps into verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain God in their knowledge. They knew the truth, but they didn't care because they didn't want God. And God's response is what? To give them up. Paul says, God gave them up to a debased mind. And I want you to understand, like, when you get into the nuts and bolts of this text, you see there's actually a symmetry and a poetry almost to it. This is very poetic, right? As Everett Harrison in his commentary puts it this way, he goes, the, the expression here, there's actually a wordplay in the Greek. And, and not being able to render it completely, here's the idea. People did not think it worthwhile to retain God in their knowledge, so God then gave them up to a depraved mind basically giving them what they wanted. They didn't want God in their knowledge, and so God gave them exactly what they wanted, a mind without Him. A mind without Him is what? Depraved, debased. A mind without God is broken. Remember, what does Solomon write in Proverbs? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Job, in the midst of his trials and travails, right? And he said to them, behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And then we have Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, I think really tells the story. My son, if you... Receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path to justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and, and who are devious in their ways. Those who seek to retain God in their knowledge, they grow in wisdom. They have minds that are renewed by the Word of God, but mankind, by his default, doesn't want God in their knowledge. They don't want God to guide their thinking. They don't want God to renew their minds. They don't want God to, to, to direct their actions. They seek to reject God from their thinking. And so God does what? He grants their wish. And He gives them up to a mind that's devoid of divine influence, and the net result 
is a mind that is debased or depraved. Now, the word that Paul uses here for depraved or debased is adokimon, and it's the idea that's related to metal and coins. And I know that might seem strange, but the idea is, is about metal or coins passing a test, you know, proving that they're, they're, they're not counterfeit. That's the idea, right? The idea is that, is, that, that, is that there's something that doesn't prove itself to be what it ought to be. Paul is saying is their minds aren't what they should be. Their minds are counterfeit. Just as false gods are counterfeits of the one true God, a mind that's devoid of God is a counterfeit of the mind that he intended for people to have. It is false. It is fake. It is sterile. It is unfit. It is broken and corrupted to its very nature. Now, this debased mind isn't just insanity as we understand it. People will see somebody that's insane. And I've heard, actually, I've seen Christians do this, see like an insane person walking down the street who's homeless, and they go, and God gave them up to a debased mind, thinking that that's what that means. Paul's not talking about insanity. What he's talking about is brokenness in the intellect, brokenness in our reasoning and rational ability. It's a broken mind that does not have the ability to consistently see and apply the truth. It is a mind that's devoid of God and inherently it's defunct. And what is the result of a mind like that? Well, Paul says, and since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The result of God giving them over to this broken mind devoid of Him is mankind doing the things that they shouldn't be doing. Mind mankind doing horrible things, not out of compulsion, not being forced to, but doing so out of their own godless desires. Now this phrase, to do what not ought to be done, literally means to do things that are not proper and fitting. That's the literal translations of that. But the root of this word actually is a little bit more precise and a little bit more telling. In the Greek, the word, the root word has something to do with an end or a destination or a goal. It's about an intended goal or purpose. And what Paul is in instance saying is those who reject God and have been given over to a mind without him which is broken, the result of that is people will do things that are contrary to their purpose and contrary to their design. Does that make sense? In other words, they're doing things they were not created to do. They're doing things that are destructive to their end and their purpose as human beings. That's why sin is destructive. They do the things that are contrary to the way that God created them. Just look around. This is what Paul is saying. Hence, sexual sin and hence homosexuality. Mankind was not created to live that way. Sexual depravity in every form is contrary to God's purpose and design. And all of that is the result of a rejection of God. It is a result of a broken, counterfeit mind. But I want you to notice something. As we kind of put these texts together. Three times in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the indictment that man knows God and rejects Him. 
And three times mankind is said to exchange some truth about God for some lie. And three times Paul says God gave them over to sin. And notice, as we said before, this gets progressively darker as he goes along. The first time God gave them over to sexual sin. The second time he gave them over to depraved passions and unnatural relationships, both of which are related to sexual immorality. But the third time God gives them up to a depraved mind resulting in sin, not just against themselves, but now sin against everyone else. Sin against the world. John Stott, in his uh, commentary on Romans, says that their depraved mind led them, led this time not to immorality, but to a whole variety of antisocial practices which ought not to be done, and which together describe the breakdown of the human community as standards disappear and society dis disintegrates. See, what Paul describes in this next passage is, is, the, is the societal consequences of those who reject God. As their hearts grow darker and they fall further into depravity, and, and the picture that Paul paints here of the human condition is a heartbreaking one. If we have the courage to, to look at it, Paul writes in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. That's just kind of his jumping off point, speaking generically. And the thing that we need to see is this word filled actually is better rendered as they are being filled. It is a present tense active kind of word. There's an ongoing activity that the person, because of their broken mind, is continually being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. And it's out of this being filled that it overflows then out into the rest of their life. Them being filled with this darkness pours out onto everyone else around them, onto humanity. Right? What does Jesus say? Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? The heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Paul is saying that those who reject God are, and been given over to a debased mind, the result of that broken thinking is that they were, are being continually filled up with darkness. They're being filled up with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Now, I want you to understand that Paul, at the beginning here, speaks kind of generically, but it bears, I think, an important point for us to actually look at this a little bit closer and understand what he's saying here. He writes that they're being filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Well, the word for unrighteousness here is derived from a Greek word that itself is made up of two words a word and a prefix. The, the, the main root word means justice, and then they add to it the prefix a or a or the alpha, and that means exactly the opposite of that. It's, it's not or anti. And so literally, this person is filled with not justice or anti-justice, or as we would say, injustice. 
And they are filled with all manner of that. Not just one particular injustice, but all manner of injustice. Suffice it to say, their heart is filled with all kinds of violations of God's standards of justice. Right? That's what Paul is saying. And then he says, they're being filled with evil. If that wasn't enough, if it weren't enough to be filled with injustice, he'd be filled with evil. And the word that Paul uses here in the original language means wickedness or iniquity. But again, that's a tame word compared to where the Greek goes. The word actually really means pain-ridden evil. Or, I think more clearly, it is a deep, deep wickedness. So filled with injustice and a deep wickedness. And then he says they're filled with covetousness, which is derived from a word that literally means to have more. (laughs) That's a good description of covetousness, right? They're filled with a desire to have more things. They, they have this insatiable appetite for material possessions, for fame, for power, for control. They simply cannot get enough. It's insatiable in them. And he says that they're being filled with malice, which can be described as vicious, as a vicious disposition. Someone who's filled with malice has a vicious disposition or inherent evil. This is just a general description. This is, this is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. They're being continually filled with this. But then he says, they are full. Which not just doesn't mean full, but full to capacity. They're full to capacity of envy, murder, strife, deceit and maliciousness. Not only are they being filled, but now they're full all the way up of these other things of of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. The word for envy is better rendered as spite or a grudge. The word has the idea of rot and decay is the root idea behind it. And the person who is filled with this is deeply bitter and spiteful towards others. And then murder, right? It's certainly about killing. But that doesn't mean that mankind, everybody just commits murder, but it means that mankind is murderous in his intent. Mankind is is murderous in his heart. And this is the capacity and the willingness to do harm to others for their own interest and gain, and everybody's capable of that. In fact, this is what explains the proliferation of abortions in our country since 1973. People would rather murder their own children than face the consequences of their actions. Having a child will will be inconvenient. Having a child will change my life. Having a child will burden me financially. That's how murderous hearts rationalize decisions like this. It's just our culture has sterilized the concept of abortion so that it doesn't feel like murder. If it doesn't feel like murder, it's easier to commit murder. But the truth is, that's where it comes from. When a mom can murder her own child for her own ends and gain, it comes from a place in here, a heart of murderous intent. And then Paul says, they're full of strife. The word can mean contention or quarrel. But it gives us the sense of willingness and readiness to fight, a willingness and readiness to, to quarrel. That's 
what Paul is getting at. Paul says that those who deny him are filled with this desire to continually find a, an argument to get into or a fight to get into. But then they're also filled, he says, with deceit. And again, this word deceit is something we are familiar with, but what you need to realize is this word actually has at its root the idea of bait, like the bait that you use for a fish. It's the idea that you're setting someone up to do them harm, right? And, and actually, it's better rendered as treachery than deceit. You're looking to lead someone astray to harm them. And then he rounds out this little list of being full of the capacity of maliciousness. Now, Paul had already talked about, you know, Malice. He said those who reject God are filled with malice, which is a vicious disposition. But he says that they, they're now full to capacity with maliciousness, which is a related idea. In fact, Paul uses, in fact, the word that Paul uses here means evil mindedness. Right? It's, it's the, so the, malice is a vicious disposition, maliciousness is evil mindedness or, or an evil lifestyle. Notice how it flows from one to the next. You have a vicious disposition that flows out into then an evil lifestyle. This is a disturbing truth, by the way. And so Paul paints this picture of how this broken mind, that a broken mind that rejects God contributes to a person's heart being filled with all manner of darkness, being filled to overflowing to the point where it, it not only pours out on the lives of other people, but this darkness becomes who they are in nature. It's not just that they're filled with it. It becomes who they are outwardly. Notice he says, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, etc. That's what he calls them. The thing that you need to realize, Paul doesn't actually need to use a verb here that indicates that they are something. Instead, the form of the noun that he uses here are linked to a person's identity. Paul uses the accusative case for all these nouns. Now, I know that you didn't, you didn't sign up for Greek class this morning, okay? And Greek grammar could probably be the least of the things that you wanted to think about. But what this means in this case is all of these nouns describe those who reject God in their knowledge. It's just simply who they are. Paul is saying that those who, who reject God, that they are this by their very nature. Now, this list that Paul wrote here describes these people. Now, it doesn't really neatly fit into a tidy box, but, but we can see a little bit of a pattern here. Notice the first two are related. Paul says that they are gossips and slanderers. Now, these are different ideas, but they are related. Both have at their root a dishonesty about other people. It's just expressed in different ways. Right? In fact, the word gossip carries with it the idea of secretly destroying a person's character. It's about secretly, behind closed doors, destroying a person's character. We know, what, we know people like that. We live in Boron, right? And the word slander carries with the idea of defaming a person, but doing so publicly. And so these people quietly whisper about you, but then they also publicly slander you. And the relationship with these words is they are people who use their words, whether surreptitiously or overtly, to destroy other people. 
Then notice the next four. They're related to each other because they're rooted, all of them, in pride. They are God-haters. And then he says, insolent, which means really finding pleasure in hurting others. That's the, the root idea of the word insolent, that they not only seek to hurt others, but they derive pleasure from hurting other people. They are haunty, which means what? They're arrogant, right? right? In fact, the word haunty is from a word that means to overshine forth, right? It means to not just shine forth, but to overshine, to, to be arrogant. And then there's boastful. The word that Paul uses here is the idea of a wandering vagrant, bragging, to anyone who was foolish enough to listen to them and take them seriously. That's the idea of the word. I'm going to tell you, like, studying Greek, I know it seems like, like a laborious thing, but there is so much you learn about the nature of language when you do this. That's the idea, that there is somebody who has no business bragging, bragging, and someone getting caught up listening to them. And so those who, those who deny God are full of pride and hubris, but the one thing that stands out in this list is that they are God-haters. Which, by the way, I think is the heart of the issue. They hate God and understand they may love their personal gods that they've created. And they may even love and be devoted to the gods they grew up with worshiping. But they hate Yahweh. They hate the one true God. The word used here means that they abhor God. They're just totally dead sent against Him in every respect. Right? And this is the source of their animosity towards God. This is the animosity here. They hate him. That's why they reject him. That's why they deny him. That's why they're willing to trade him. That's why they're trying to destroy his image in humanity. They, in their pride, hate God. But not only are they full of pride, they are also, it says, inventors of evil, which in the English understates who they really are. The word for inventor actually means someone who's a discoverer or a learner. And the picture that Paul's painting here is these people are not satisfied with just simply doing the evil they know to do, but they're looking and searching and, and, and researching ways to be even more evil than they already are, which I think is an apt description of the human condition today. I mean, seriously, some of the things that people think of to find ways to be evil just are mind-blowing. Like 30 years ago would have been unthinkable. I mean, the fact that, that cross-dressers and drag queens are having story time in the libraries with four- and five-year-old children is mind-blowing. But today it's normal. They're inventors of evil. And then there's the strangest one on the list. Paul says that they are disobedient to parents, which really, for us in our culture, seems really out of place. doesn't seem like that's, that's a really bad one, right? I mean, in fact, this is the one that people make fun of. This is the one that people laugh at. In fact, even people will, will, will go, wait a minute, you're going to tell me, you know, that you know, the, the, on the same list as sexual immorality is, is people who don't obey their parents? Well, God doesn't really, must not, not take that very serious. But there is actually an important point that Paul's making here. Paul's point isn't saying that, that, that people will never 
disobey their parents. It's not what he's talking about, you know, kids who get a little bit sideways with their parents from time to time and need discipline and punishment. Paul's point here is open, defiant rebellion against parents, right? What he's talking about is the absolute rejection of parental authority. That's the point that he's making here, right? And again, this reveals the unbeliever's contempt for the created natural order. Men and women were to get married and stay in a lifelong union, and the product of that, the blessing of that, was what? Children. And children then were born into a God-given hierarchy of authority that reflects Him. A hierarchy that points to a deeper spiritual reality. Like those who trust in Christ have a heavenly Father and are His children subject to Him. And so rebellion, open, wanton rebellion against your parents is another sign of rebellion against God. That's the point. It's the rejecting of God it's just simply doing it on a different level. This is why we as Christians encourage kids to honor and respect and obey their parents, even if their parents are not believers, because that's the God-created order. This is what God intended. This is the picture of their relationship to God. But then Paul describes how vastly ugly the darkness in their hearts becomes and says that they are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And the word foolish means that they are not able to synthesize. That's the literal translation, unable to synthesize. And you're like, what does that mean? What that means is they are not able to synthesize and process a coherent, logical thought is what, what he's saying. This word means that they are without true comprehension, the heart of the idea is their thinking of their mind has been broken, that it's inconsistent. The idea is that logic fails them. Their reasoning ability is not coherent or consistent anymore. And believe me, this is what we see all over the world today, is an inconsistency in the way people think. And I'm going to give you a clear example of this. Right? It has been argued that men don't have the right to speak on abortions because they're men and don't have a uterus. I've heard that argument multiple times in the last couple of years. But then men who don't have a uterus can become women, and as women, they can then speak on an abortion. So then logically speaking, biological men who don't have a uterus now have suddenly have the right to speak on abortions. That's the inconsistency of, of their logic. Or, or how about this one? You've heard this probably before, that there is no objective truth. People make that claim all the time, which, by the way, itself is an objective truth claim, right? The claim that there is no objective truth is a truth claim that's presented as objectively true, which can't be objectively true if there's no such thing as objective truth. But we live in a world where people right now are filled with these kind of inconsistencies and contradictions, and they simply just don't care that they're not, that they don't work, their minds are not as such to where they actually see or understand or even appreciate the fact that they are living inconsistently. There are many of these things. Logic fools them, and so they're truly, as Paul says, foolish. But then he says they're also faithless. Now, I want you to understand, when he says faithless here, he doesn't mean that they don't have the ability to have faith in something. Everybody has faith in something. Even atheists have faith in their atheism. Right. So he's not talking about not being having some type of faith, what he's saying is they are 
They're untrustworthy. That's the point of, of being faithless. The word that he uses here literally means not a covenant. In other words, these people don't keep their word. They don't keep their agreements. They don't keep their covenants. They don't do what they've promised. They are treacherous. That's the idea. They're untrustworthy. And then he says that they are heartless. And heartless is a generic, sterile English word. But what does it really mean to be heartless? We've heard that. You're heartless. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here is comprised of, again, a word, storge, which means a natural affection that people feel for family members. And then he fixes the the prefix a to that, which means they are not or they are anti-loving. In other words, they are unloving. That's what it means to be heartless. They are without the capacity to truly love with a natural affection. They are hard-hearted, self-centered. They may appear to love. They might love when it's in their best interest, but that true depth of, of love isn't within them. And then he says that they're ruthless. And the word ruthless here literally means to be without pity or mercy. Again, it's a root word with the, the A attached to it, which means they are unmerciful is the literal translation. Brothers and sisters, this is a very dark picture of those who reject God. John Stott says these last four characteristics, those people who reject God are without brains, without honor, without love, and without pity. This is the dark estimation of the human condition. This is who mankind is, rejecting God and getting what he wants. You see, God doesn't have to set them on fire and strike them with lightning bolts. God doesn't have to reveal His wrath to them in another flood. He just simply lets them go and gives them what they want. They destroy themselves in the process and everyone else with them. You want to know what the world is like, why it's like it is? You want to know why there's so much senseless violence in the world? You want to know why that there's such a lack of decency amongst people today? You want to know why people are treating each other the way they are? The looting, the rioting, the hateful rhetoric? The wrath of God is being poured out on people. God has given these people what they want, a life in mind and heart without Him. And this self-destruction we see around us is the result of that. But it still continues to get worse because after walking his audience through the overwhelming consequences of a debased mind that rejects God, Paul adds the exclamation point, to his original charge, and he says, though they know. Right now, can it be any clearer? Can it be any clearer that what Paul is saying is true, that they know? He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's even worse. Those who reject God not, and, and, and they know Him and they know full well that their sin leads to death, they know that the wages of sin is death, right? They know that their immorality and their abhorrent sexual behavior and their gossiping and slandering and God-hating, all of those things are, are grounds for God's righteous justice upon their lives. They know that they're going to be punished, but, but even more than that, 
they encourage others to do the same. They still reject God. They still suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They refuse to acknowledge Him. They refuse to give Him honor. And even more, they, they revel in their sin and their foul deeds. But not only do they stick their own middle finger in the face of God doing what they do, they encourage other people to do the same. Not only do they sell themselves in the pit of hell, they bring others along with them. And what does Jesus say about this? Remember Mark chapter 9, verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it is better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. The judgment and the wrath of God is upon them, and they know it, and they simply don't care. Why? Because they hate him. They love their sin. They love the illusion of their autonomy. They love their false gods. And they hate the God who graciously created them and sustains them moment by moment. And this here is the root of the problem. And it leads to a startling truth. This is the condition of all of humanity. I mean, Paul is talking about the Gentiles here. But really, this applies to the entire world of men. Paul is describing the entire human race. Everyone, until they are reborn, everyone, until they have faith in Christ, is dead in their sins and their trespasses. Now, this doesn't mean that every person that you meet participates in every one of these sins to the fullest level possible. That's not what Paul is saying here. It doesn't mean that everyone who rejects God is going to be a gossip. It doesn't mean that everyone who rejects God is going to rebel against their parents. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be a murderer. But it does mean that everyone at their heart, in their root, hates God. Everyone denies the truth about Him, and everyone refuses to give God His due. Everyone knows that sin deserves death, but they do it anyway. They don't care. And they will, own, and they will not only deny God all the way to their doom, but they'll take others to hell with them. This is who humanity is without Christ. Which means, by the way, if this is true, what this means is if God didn't save anyone, if God decided to not have mercy on anyone, if God sent all of humanity to hell, God would still be right, good, and just, and He would still be just as loving if that's what He did. And He would be completely righteous in doing so. I stand before the cross of Christ, and I'm under no illusion that God has no obligation toward me. Right? And by the way, those who go to hell will willingly go there because they hate Him. And so there is no one who is innocent. There is no one who's good enough by their own good deeds to be spared from the wrath of God to come. No one. Not your little old sweet grandma. Not your best friends. Not your Spouse, not your children or your grandchildren. Not your neighbor who always does so much for everyone else around them. Not the sweet little lady who makes a point to make sure all the kids in the community are fed and always have warm clothes. The picture that Paul paints in this part of the gospel is a picture that everyone, is a picture of everyone you have ever known, is a picture of everyone you have ever loved. This is the charge against mankind that makes them all guilty and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And there is no hope for anyone on their own. They are 
hopelessly lost on their own. The only hope that any human being has or has ever had is for God himself to work a miracle on our behalf. That is the only hope that we have is if God does something for us that we can't do and he has. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is is founded on the truth that God has worked a number of miracles for us. Not just one, but many miracles for us. The fact of the matter is he suspended his punishment against you right now in your life. That you're not dead right now for the sins you committed yesterday is a miraculous, gracious act of God. Do you understand that? The fact that he suspends his justice until we finally meet him is a miracle that he works for us. giving giving us an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. And then if that weren't enough, he sent Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God into the world to take on a human nature like ours. And in that human nature, he did all the things for us we couldn't do for ourselves. And also the things that we would refuse to do anyway. He lived the perfect righteous life that we couldn't live. He upheld the law that we failed to keep. He fulfilled the covenant of works that we fell short of. He secured for us a perfect righteous standing before God, a righteousness that's required, a righteousness we could never earn by our own efforts. And then, again, if that were miracle enough, he went to the cross and endured the torture of men and received in his body the full weight of the awful and terrible wrath of God that was due to all of us for the sins that we committed including our God-hating, and then went and then he drank down every last drop of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath. And what did he say? It is finished. And then he died in our place. And when that happened, the veil in the temple was torn in two, indicating that the chasm between God and man was overcome by Christ himself, who is the door and who is the path to life. And then he was laid in the tomb for three days, and on the third day he rose to life again, proving that sin and death have been permanently conquered and proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, save you from your sins and the wrath of God to come. And he freely offers to everyone that if they will believe the gospel and place their trust in Christ, then their sins will be forgiven forever. They'll be washed away forever, and they will be given a perfect righteous standing before God, and they will have in that moment life eternal and the assurance of Christ's presence in their life for the rest of their life. But even that, understand, brothers and sisters, If that's all that God did, mankind's hearts are so hard, mankind would still reject God and deny Him. As do so many people around us today. You ever wonder why? Why do people reject Jesus? The offer is simple. The offer is gracious. The offer is right there. Why? It's because they they hate God. And so God works another miracle through the Holy Spirit. He comes to us with the plow of conviction and breaks up our hardened hearts through circumstances and through the people around us and through the preaching of his word. And he takes out that hard heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of of flesh. and, And he sends someone to proclaim the gospel, the good news, which is the bad news of who we are, but the good news of what God has done. And then he finally 
Finally, the seeds of the gospel fall into the fertile soil of our hearts. And finally, it takes root and bears fruit of faith and repentance. And suddenly, miraculously, the God that we once hated, we begin to love. And the sins that we once loved, we begin to hate. Why? Because we are a new creation. You see, salvation is 100% the gracious work of God that, that owes us nothing but His judgment. A God that we hated anyway. But in an act of overwhelming love and grace, He changed our hearts and made a way for us to be saved through repentance and faith in Christ. God literally took His enemies who hated Him, who spat on Him, who spurned Him, who rejected Him, who ran from Him, and He miraculously takes those people and turns them into family who love Him, who adore Him, who worship Him. That is the miraculous power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And that right there is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And so I call everyone, if you've not already, heed the gospel call to repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your old life and turn to Christ and place all of your hope and faith and trust in Him alone. He will save you. That is the promise, the promise that will not fail, that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And for those of you who have been saved, that's the message that we have to go tell people about. Not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Not that, you know what, if, if you'll just put your faith in God, all of a sudden all your problems are going to disappear. No. We need to tell them about who they are, that they are enemies of God who hate Him. But God sent His Son to die for them and give them new life. And if they repent and believe, they will be part of God's eternal family forever. That is the gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, is the hope of the world. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.